Today's scripture is from John chapter 13, verse 1 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he would come and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you this morning. Before we jump into John 13, I wanted to let you know that next Sunday, we're kicking off a new series in the book of Galatians, and that series is going to carry us all the way until Christmas Eve. And our, our heart behind that is Galatians, for me personally, Galatians is one of the most important books that I've ever read. Galatians changed my life. I don't think I'd be a pastor apart from that book. And it's a book that at times is pretty raw, it's very, very honest but it speaks to some of the, the deepest issues of the Christian life and life in general. And the big theme of Galatians is this theme of freedom, that in Christ Jesus, we have been set free. But when I look at the church, not just our church, when I look at the church, I don't see a lot of Christians living with this spirit of freedom. I see people enslaved to a lot of different things. People are enslaved to various forms of sins, addictions, negative thoughts, bitterness, negative emotions, negative self-image, that we, I don't think most of us have even begun to taste the freedom that Jesus has accomplished for us. And so what I want to ask you, looking ahead to this fall, is would you join me in prayer that God might do a deep work of renewal in our midst as we work through Galatians together, that we might more fully understand and experience the freedom that Jesus Christ has secured for us. Will you guys pray with me on that uh, over the coming weeks? 
That's next week. This week, we're wrapping up our series on the five identities. And we come to the identity that, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, it's the non-flashy identity. All the other ones you can kind of spruce up. This one's like a washing machine. You buy a new washing machine, it's like, this is cool, but it's a washing machine. It's the servant identity. And it's the one that, like, I think we all know we're supposed to serve. We should serve. It's an obligatory thing, but... I don't know if we see the, uh, the beauty and the vision that Jesus has for us as servants. So we're looking at John 13, and this text is very famous, but it's a very important text even in the midst of John's gospel. You see, in John's gospel, chapters 1 through 12, those first 12 chapters cover the span of about three years. And John basically gives us some highlights, greatest hits of Jesus's ministry, whether it's turning water to wine or feeding 5,000, walking on water. But throughout those first 12 chapters, the time frame is really ambiguous. It's like Jesus did this, and then sometime later, Jesus did this, and then sometime later, Jesus did this, and time is moving along at a pretty good clip. And then you get to John 13, and time stands still. John stops everything, and the next five chapters all occur over the span of one evening. And it's the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. And the reason John slows everything down is because on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered together in a private room with his disciples, and he had a challenge for them. He had a challenge he was facing with them. How does, how does he sum up everything he's taught before he goes to the cross? Like He knows he's leaving them, so how does he boil down the essence of what he's about and what they must be about before he goes? And he doesn't give them a bunch of propositions. He ultimately gives them a picture. He says, do you want to know what I'm all about? Do you want to know what you must be about as my representatives in the world? Go wash feet. Wash dirty feet. Be a servant. And so we're going to look at this text under three headings. We're going to look at it. Number one, we're going to talk about the pattern that Jesus establishes for us. Number two, the problem we have with that pattern, why we struggle to actually live into this identity, and number three, where we can find the power to actually do it. Starting with the pattern. You know, at the very end, Jesus says, I've given you an example. I've set an example for you. And so the text we're looking at, it's not just about what Jesus has done. He is doing this with an eye for us to follow after him, to emulate him. And to understand the depth of this call, you have to understand that in that day, just like in our day, feasting was a big deal, but it was kind of a much bigger deal back then. Feasting was something that you would spend days, weeks, months anticipating. And this night, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, it was a very special day in the Jewish year. It was the day of Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples are getting together to celebrate the feast of Passover, which is this big feast that you would celebrate uh, remembering God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And so I tell you all that to say, this night's a really big deal for everyone there. Now, typically, like in our day, in that day, you would do your best to present yourself well at a feast like this. You'd take a shower, you know, you'd shave, you'd clean, you'd put nice clothes on. The difference is, back then, you wouldn't get into a car because you didn't have cars. You'd have to go walk to the feast. And you'd be walking not on pavement, but on dirt. 
and the roads back then, they were shared between people and animals. And so it was a hot, arid climate, and so you'd have dirt, but then you'd also have, you know, animal waste, and they didn't have indoor plumbing back then, and so the streets were often a place where they would throw human waste as well. And so you would take this nice shower, you know, you'd get yourself spiffed up, and then you'd be in sandals walking through just filth and nastiness on your way to the feast. And then when you got to the feast, you wouldn't sit around the table like we do. The table would be lower to the ground, and everyone would kind of lay down and recline on an arm and eat together, uh, which kind of sounds cool and kind of weird at the same time. But I want you to imagine you've just walked through all of this dirt and filth and your feet are kind of nasty and you're all going to lay down together. No one's wearing shoes or socks. You're all in sandals. It's like you don't want your nasty feet by other people and you certainly don't want other people's nasty feet near you or your food. And so the custom was, as soon as you'd arrive at the feast, there would be a slave, and not just any slave, the lowest of slaves. They would be there and they would get down on their hands and knees and they would wash your feet. The problem on this evening is Jesus is a wanted man. People are out looking for him to arrest him and kill him. And so this feast isn't publicized and there's no servant present. Which means there's no one there to wash the feet. And no upstanding Jewish man would ever consider washing another man's feet. But there's this problem at the dinner. Everyone knows, like everyone knows their feet are still dirty. And it's like, do we lay down? even with the dirty feet, what are we going to do? It was kind of this unspoken thing in the room for them. No disciple volunteers. And then John tells us in verse 4 that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John very slowly describes Jesus. He takes off basically his sport coat, you could say. He ties a towel around his waist. And John's so slow and deliberate how he describes it. He gets down on his hands and knees. And he basically starts crawling around the room from man to man, washing their feet. And then, in verse 12, after he finishes, and I can't even imagine what that would have been like. I mean, we, we see Peter's objection, which we'll talk about, but how, how strange it must have been for them. But then in verse 12, Jesus says, or John tells us that when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus sums it all up and says this very lowly, menial, almost degrading task that I've done for you this evening, I want you to be those kinds of people towards others. I want you guys to go and spend your lives washing feet. Now, what makes this act of foot washing that Jesus does so powerful is it's simple, it's done in secret, and it's unselective. And I think those are kind of good handholds for us as we think about the service that Jesus calls us to. One, it's simple. What are we called to? Well, when you see a need, 
meet it. When you see someone in need, you, you go and you meet the need, regardless of how menial or low or whatever you might consider it, regardless if you think it's beneath you, nothing's beneath you, go meet needs. It's interesting. Jesus, he doesn't say, if you see a need that you're particularly gifted to meet, go and meet it. And he doesn't say, if you see a need that you know if you meet it, it will tap some deep longing and passion, like way down deep within you, then you should go meet it. Now, I think you should use your gifts, and I hope that in meeting needs, it does touch something deep within you. But Jesus doesn't offer any of those qualifiers. Jesus says, no, you see a need, need, go and meet it. See, what I want to prevent is this mindset I often see in the church where it's like, well, I'm not really gifted in that area. I'm not really gifted as a foot washer. I'm gifted in things that are clean, usually done in air conditioning and don't require heavy lifting. That seems to be most people's spiritual gifts. And Jesus here is saying, no, no, no. You don't have to be gifted. You don't need a special gifting to wash feet. That's just following me. It's simple. But it's also done in secret. You know, serving, it's kind of a hip thing in our day, you know, especially with social media. People serve, but we usually want to serve, like serving's a means to an end, and usually it's a selfish end. And so you serve so that you can post it on social media. You make sure that you get good pictures, like why you have your gloves in the dirt. It's like, can you get a pic just like this where I'm really like digging the thing up? So that's one of them. Or... I mean, some of you, you're in high school preparing for college, and you know, like, you have to go serve so that you can put it on applications. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying what Jesus does here, he doesn't do for publicity. He does it secretly. No one's there except for his disciples. It's not as if Jesus fed the 5,000 and afterwards said, not only am I powerful, I'm humble. Watch what I can do here. He does it in secret. Thirdly, He's unselective, which I don't think is a word, but you know what I mean. Jesus, he doesn't say, as I have washed your feet, so you must wash my feet. Jesus says, I have, as I have washed your feet, you must wash one another's feet. That distinction's pretty big. Because if Jesus says, as I've washed your feet, you must wash mine, I think most of the disciples would have said, I can wash the feet of the Lord of the universe? Yeah, I'll be glad to. But he says, no, you must wash one another's feet. That's where everyone kind of pulls back a little bit. So do it with one another. But then, you know, as you're reading it, Jesus keeps hinting at the fact that he knows Judas is betraying him, is handing him over to be killed. And yet John doesn't say when Jesus went to wash the feet, he went from John to Andrew, and then he got to Judas and skipped around him. Like he washed his feet too. It's unselective. He didn't say, I'm going to serve the ones that I really like, or I see something good coming in return. He served his enemy. When I look at the church and I look at our calling in the world to be a light in the darkness, a city on the hill. And when I look at our reputation as Christians in our society, I just wonder how different it would be if we had a better embodied and if we were to better embody these things. 
know, doing lowly service behind the scenes for everyone. But that's really hard for us. That gets to the problem. Why is it so hard? Doing this, living this life, I, I, I don't know if I've met a person who says, I feel like I've really nailed the foot washing part of Christianity. Why is it so hard? Well, we get a window into it when Jesus comes to Peter to wash his feet and Peter speaks up. John says that Jesus came to Simon Peter and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And I love Peter. He's so impetuous and just, I, I think he'd be a hard guy to be friends with at times, but I really like him. Uh, he says, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand, which should be enough. When Jesus says, you're not going to understand this, I'm just going to do it. But Peter can't control himself. And he says, you shall never wash my feet. Never in a million years will your hands, Jesus, touch my feet. Why? Why is Peter so emphatic and resistant? Because there's an order to things, right? Because in this world, slaves wash feet, not masters. In this world, you don't have the guy you're following do the most degrading of tasks. It upsets the order. It's not only inappropriate, it's unbecoming. I mean, imagine if your boss came over for dinner. After you finish dinner, you're going and you're making coffee and grabbing dessert. You come in and your boss stands up, like takes off their sport coat or her sweater and wanders away into the bathroom. You're like, where are you going? And they wander into your bathroom and they pick up the toilet scrubber and start scrubbing the toilet. And I'm not talking about the guest bathroom that you just cleaned an hour before knowing they would come. I'm talking they went into your master bathroom, they found it, and they're on their hands and knees scrubbing the toilet. You would say what? Hey, thanks for doing that. I really appreciate it. No. What are you doing? Get up. Put the toilet cleaner down. Like, this is beneath you. See, our world and our hearts hold to this deeply held belief that if life were a ladder, the way to find happiness, success, greatness, power, and purpose is by going up the rungs of that ladder. Our world and our hearts say life is a ladder and the way we find happiness, success, greatness, and power is we go up the ladder and we spend our lives trying to climb from rung to rung wrong. We do it, we don't even think about it. It's, it's just automatic. It's like the air we breathe. We don't even notice this pull. We spend our lives. We want to get a better education, a better job. We want to get a better car and then a better house. And once we get those things, we want to get the next upgrade. And sometimes this leads us to do things that are not good. Like we, we want better friends, you know, who have more connections. Or maybe you decide you want a better spouse. But we spend our lives saying, how can I upgrade? How can I get up to that next level. How can I advance? How can I get to the next rung? I don't know if you remember that commercial with Beyonce, the cell phone commercial. Anyone? Let me get an upgrade. I'm like, that is our society right there. Let me get an upgrade, 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 upgrade. I mean, she says it a million times in the song. And that's what we do. And that's what we want to do. We give our lives to climbing the ladder. And every time we, we get an advancement or a promotion, all of a sudden we feel like, 
we've found more greatness. And the one thing we never want to do is go down the rungs. When someone goes down rungs, we call that bad luck, misfortune, tragedy, or failure and losing. There's an order. It's not just us who believe in this order. It's the disciples as well. In Luke 22, which is a parallel passage here to John 13, we learn a little bit about the context of this meal, that before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the disciples are actually arguing. We're told in verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. So they're gathered at this meal. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And they're like, he's leaving. All right, who gets his office? Like, who's going to be greatest? You're not going to be great. You're too short. You don't have the looks. You're a pretty good public speaker. I think I should be the great. They're debating with one another, going back and forth, trying to say, no, no, I should be in charge when he leaves. No, I should be in charge. People will remember me. And so in the midst of this arguing, is it any wonder that not one of them volunteered to start washing feet? I mean, it's hard to make a case that you should be revered and honored and be considered great when you're crawling around on the floor cleaning grime off of people's feet. Except for that's what Jesus does. And Luke tells us that he responds, words that he spoke to them that evening. He said, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? So the question he's asking, you go to Mojitos or Ceviche or your favorite restaurant in town, Jesus is saying, who's greater? You, when you're sitting at the table with the menu opening, open, getting food delivered to you, or the busboy that you don't even notice or you feel like it's an annoyance because they interrupt your conversation? Who's greater? And Jesus says, is it not the one who is at the table? He's acknowledging, yeah, that's the way the world works. But then he says this, but I am among you as one who serves. I'm here to bust the tables. The world measures greatness by the size of your entourage, the number of people who serve you. Jesus says, I measure greatness by the number of people you serve. And I'm among you as one who serves. See, the value system of this world is on a collision course with the values of Jesus' kingdom. And what he's trying to teach his disciples here is you have to pick a side. You've got to choose. This world tells you to climb every rung, step on people if you need to, do whatever you can to get up and up and never look down. And Jesus is saying, wherever you are, I want you to always be looking down. I want you to be climbing down. I want you to be serving, and I want you to be helping people. The Christian understanding of greatness is that the way up is down, that the way to influence and power is not by having a ton of followers, it's by serving people, that the way to find happiness is to seek first the happiness of others. The way to find abundant life is by giving your life away. But what Jesus teaches here, it's, it's in direct contradiction with what the world teaches. And so you've got to choose you can't kind of straddle the two. The way up is the way down. Now, 
I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not saying you should never try to get a good education or buy a nice house. And if you get a promotion, I hope you can celebrate it. What I'm saying is we look at those things to find meaning in life, and Jesus is saying that's not where meaning is found. Meaning is found in giving your life away and climbing down the ladder. And he goes to great lengths to teach this because it's so hard for us, because it runs counter to everything we know and everything we believe. I look at our church, and we have so many needs, so many needs. We have so many, like, the number of kids on a Sunday here is like four times the size of the average church in America. And we, people refer to our church as the breeders because we, <laughs> we have a lot of kids, you know? Like, some of us more than others, but, you know, it's interesting when I meet people who go to Sojourn and I'm like, do you have any kids? And they say, yeah, we only have three. You know, like, <laughs> says something about our church. Uh, but, like, we don't have... We don't have a ton of servants because it's hard because you got to wipe snotty noses and change diapers and because toddlers in particular for me, the walkers, I even like that phrase, the walkers. Uh, that's kind of what they feel like to me when, when they're in that stage, like I don't know what to do here. And so we, we perpetually struggle to find servants over and over again. And when you talk to people about it, it's always kind of this... I guess I'm willing to condescend if you guilt me enough. Or I guess my kids are back there, so I should serve every once in a while. But there's not a belief that actually I'm, I'm following Jesus and going down the ladder and serving in something that maybe is not my gift, but it's a need. Jesus modeled this for us. I find we often want to serve in the things that are prestigious or fun or flashy. This, this model Jesus sets before us is none of those things. And so this is the model. We struggle with it because it runs counter to the world and Jesus sets an example for us, but we can't just stop saying Jesus is a great example, even though he is a great example. And we are called to emulate his example. We are called to ask, what would Jesus do and seek to live as he lived? But if that's all we do, that's not going to actually put you, change the direction of your life and compel you into a life of sustained service. It might move you for like a week. You can sit with it, kind of like a movie. I don't know if you ever saw a movie that really inspired you when you were a kid. I remember watching uh, Rudy, and like after that, it was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to start playing football. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to like be that kid. And that lasted like an hour, you know, and then I went to playing video games. Because inspiring, it's great, but inspiring doesn't produce sustained and lasting change. So what will? What's going to give us the power to give our lives away like our Lord gave his life away? I can tell you three things that won't come from. One, it's not going to come from fear. You're not going to get sustained, lasting power to give your life away. If someone says, well, if you don't do these things and you don't do them well enough, you can't know if you're a Christian. It's not going to come from fear's cousin, guilt. Anyone ever heard that Jesus has done so much for you? What are you going to do for him? I always call that the youth pastor's mantra. Like Jesus has done all these things for you. So what are you going to do in return? 
that's not going to produce lasting change. And it's not going to come through obligation. Like some of you, you'll do it, but you'll do it begrudgingly. You'll serve, but you won't serve with joy. You'll be like the older brother and the story of the prodigal son, embittered and angry that you're serving all the time and no one else is. See, those are the things that we typically go to. I mean, I listen to a lot of preaching. I talk to a lot of pastors. I kind of know the preaching world. And those are like three really easy motivators for like momentary change, fear, scare people, guilt, make them feel awful, or obligation, which is kind of another form of guilt. The problem is none of those produce joy, life, the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, you know what fear and guilt and obligation produce? They produce neurotic, insecure, anxiety-ridden Christians. And you know what neurotic, insecure, anxiety-ridden Christians do? They look to find security someplace besides Jesus, which means they start climbing the ladder. Like, here's how I know my life matters. And it just drives the problem even deeper. So if it's not fear, it's not guilt, it's not obligation, what is it that motivates us long-term? What was it that motivated Jesus? Verse one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the finish, to the bottom. Maybe you have an image of Jesus in your mind at the Last Supper. He's there, ready to eat and get on with his talk. None of the disciples volunteer. And he's like, fine, I guess I will be the one who washes the feet because I always have to do this. That's not his posture. His posture is I love these men. and I'm going to love them until the end. And I want to show them the depth of my love in very real, concrete ways. If you want to step into a life of service, that's always born out of love. A serving problem is ultimately a love problem because when you love someone, you serve them. That's why any good, normal parent, when they bring a child home from the hospital after being born, and the child, you know, does its thing in the diaper, the parent doesn't say, I don't know if I'm going to do this. That's beneath me. Or it's like my house. Your kids get a little older, and there's still accidents all the time. Clean up on aisle five, always in my house, like at least once a day. We have some mess to clean up, and I'm never like, no, I'm just going to leave that there, or no, I'm just going to leave you in your dirty diaper. I'll do things that I don't particularly enjoy doing, and that... I thought by this stage in my life, I wouldn't have to do those kinds of things. But when you have kids and you love the kids, you go do those things because you love them. Because love fuels service. Jesus, he loved his disciples and so he didn't mind getting his hands dirty. The problem with serving is ultimately a problem of love. Now, the question then becomes, okay, because if you're tracking with me, this is a little complicated, but if you're tracking with me, we can't just say, all right, I got to serve more. And I don't want you to hear just me saying you need to love people more, although you do, we all do, but saying that's not going to get you there either. 
Where in the world do we get this kind of love that kneels and that crawls? Where did Jesus get this love? Well, John tells us in verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and washed his disciples' feet. It wasn't just love for the disciples. It was ultimately knowing the love of the Father. I mean, John is so deliberate in how he words that. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that all things belonged to him, knowing that he'd come from God, and that even though he's going to die and suffer pain that we cannot imagine, he knows that he's going back to God, thinking of all of this high, heavy, weighty theology. You know what it makes Jesus do? Go low in service and love his disciples. Knowing the love of God pushes him out and the love of other people. And that's where motivating you and calling you to service in the church, it's so tricky. You know, I, have, I was talking to someone today and they said, you know what we should do? Tell people, unless they serve this many times uh, in kids, then they, they can't leave their kids and sojourn kids. I'm like, well, that might solve the problem for some people. But that's, that's like a, that's more of a law thing, not a gospel thing. And everyone's life's different and people are in different stages. And, and so you need servants, but then you, it's like, well, I don't want to just beat people up about service. How do you get people there? And it's like, well, you have to stir affections. It has to be born out of love. And that's a harder thing to do. But until, unless you not just intellectually believe, but you're actually tapping into the love of God, like you're always going to struggle to serve. I heard one pastor say, it's just simple economics. You know, if you want to endlessly give your money away, what do you need? an endless stream of cash, right? You can't endlessly give your money away if you don't have an endless stream of cash or else then you get hungry and then you, you die and you can't serve anymore. So that's not an effective means. Anyone else ever feel like in the New Testament that the calls of Jesus feel like basically just give everything away all the time? Like give your life away, give your time away, give your energy, give it all away. Give it all away in love. Well, if you're going to do that, you need an endless stream of love pouring into your life to fuel that. There's no way that you can, in a sustained way, go and lovingly serve and sacrifice for other people unless the love of God is continually being shed abroad in your heart, as Paul says in Romans 5. And so if you're here wondering, okay, I, you might believe that God is love in the abstract, Believing that God is love in the abstract, that's never going to change your life. Abstractions never change lives. Lives are changed in the particular. And so how do you experience the love of God at a deeper level? I'll give you two ways. One, you have to believe in Jesus. Jesus Christ came to redeem us, to cleanse us, to save us, to bring us to the Father. And there's a challenge with his message because Jesus doesn't come and say to his, his disciples, I love you just the way you are with all that nastiness on your feet. Let's just eat. 
But Jesus also doesn't say, how dare you come to me with that nastiness? You clean yourself up and then we can talk. Jesus brings an indictment of sin, but he also invites us in to life with him and he promises and he offers to pay the price, which is what he's done on the cross. And the first place you gotta go if you wanna experience the love of God is you gotta put your trust in him who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty with your dirt in order to bring you to God. The second place, if you are a believer, how do you deepen in the love of God? Well, Jesus went to really high theology and I don't think we should be afraid to either. Jesus clung to like the great promises and we must not be afraid to either. And everything that Jesus thought of here in verse three, everything that he knew that was true of him, I would argue it's true of us in him. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands. As believers, you know what that means for us? Like everything ultimately works out for our good, even the bad things. Good things can never be taken from us and the best things are yet to come. Everything we really need, we will always have. Jesus, knowing he'd come from God, he had a deep sense of identity, knowing he was returning to God, which meant what happened in this life, it ultimately didn't hurt him. All of those promises, those are things we can claim. Like we, in Christ, we have all we need. We've come from him and we know that the worst possible thing that this life can throw at us, which is death, it's like a sting without venom. I mean, it's not gonna be fun for most of us, but it ultimately won't hurt us. I mean, we live forever. And in Christ Jesus, we live forever with God. And so all the things that happen in this world, they're light and they're momentary because God has redeemed us and he's loved us to the bottom. You wanna know how to give your life away for Jesus? You gotta let that truth sink so deeply within that you know when he says, whatever he calls you to, you can respond and say, man, we're unworthy servants. Everything you've done for me, we're unworthy servants. Like us being able to untie the laces of people's shoes, we're not even worthy of that because of what you've done for us. And so I pray for you. I pray for us as a church. Pray that we wouldn't just go through the motions or the game of Christianity. I pray that the love of God which is the highest and best. There's nothing greater and nothing better that would be shed abroad in our hearts and compel us to action. One of the things we do every week to, to serve that end is we take part in the Lord's Supper. We're reminded that on this night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is poured out for you. Now the disciples, they didn't get exactly what he was saying there. But a few days later, they totally understood that Jesus Christ died for our sins. His body was broken and blood was shed for us. And that our standing with him, it's not contingent upon how well we perform or all of the things that we do, or what we've achieved, or how high we are in the ladder, our standing with him rests in the finished work that he's accomplished for us on our behalf. And so if you're here, and you feel spiritually numb right now, and you think, God, God's just kind of distant, he's not. 
Your heart might be numb, but God is not distant. God's love for you is not contingent upon your fervor for him.